Let's talk about smarter medicine with tiny systems of biomolecular circuits. Next on the K-12 Engineering Education Podcast. I'm Pius Wong in Austin, Texas. My guest is Dr. Xiaojing Gao, who runs a research lab at Stanford University where his team engineers biomolecular circuits. Xiaojing spoke to me from California about this new and innovative field at the intersection of biology, chemistry, and engineering. So I'm Xiaojing. I'm an assistant professor here in the Department of Chemical Engineering. And my lab works on mammalian synthetic biology. And what that means is we engineer biomolecules, you know, proteins, RNA, DNA. Hmm. But unlike traditional biomolecular engineering, we don't engineer them as standalone entities. We engineer them as a collection that can regulate each other. And then we can put that whole collection into human cells with the hope that they can sense the state of the cell, process the information, and they actuate a appropriate outcome all within this self-contained, which we call circuit. Circuit is a metaphor we always mm. use for this type of engineering entity we do. You said a lot of complex things that sounds very amazing to me, actually. I have a background in bioengineering from way in the day. I didn't do that kind of, I did more biomechanics, so not necessarily stuff at the molecular level. But you, you started saying you focus on synthetic biology. You're creating these systems or circuits of mm-hmm. molecules. Mm-hmm. First of all, why would we, as, as, a, as a people, why would we be interested in creating these biomolecular circuits, what's the, the use or what's the, the benefit of this? Right. You know, if I want to be the spokesperson for my field, right, there are many ways that should be on human health. But in the context of human health, I actually teach a class called uh, Reactor Design to undergrads, okay? And I have never designed any reactors in my life. So, you know, when a student asks me, they're like, uh, Xiaojing, what if my reactor is contaminated? And me putting on my biology hat, I was like, what you do is you just take a bottle of bleach, you spray this all over your reactor, <laughs> it's going to leak into your reactor and fix it, right? And, you know, Pius, you know how ridiculous that sounds. But, but the problem is that's exactly what happens with conventional medicine, right? The mm-hmm. reactor now is your cell, and the medicine you take has to miraculously leak into your cell and fix it for you which actually happens a lot of times and saves a lot of lives. But from our perspective, there are certain diseases that's just very hard to fix with this kind of approach, with this kind of open loop. Well, the loop is closed. So you put the medicine in, right? And you, you go to the lab, take some tests. You go to the physician. And the physician with a system computer is the one who processes information. And then they close the loop by going back to the patient. Right. Hmm. But we believe if you know you can just close the loop at the molecular level, then it's everything is just taken care of by that therapy itself. Right. You can eventually, you know, that's a wilder dream, but someday you can just cut the physician out of the equation. Right. You design a smart enough circuit that can do the input, output, and processing all in one. And yeah, so that that's where we are going or trying to get to. What you're saying makes me think of, for example, chemotherapy and cancer. That's the notorious example where you shove medicine in someone and it just kind of attacks everything in an unregulated way. So you're saying that in your field, uh, researchers like you can hopefully create something that um, is self-regulated. It's not so, 
dumb. You're making smart medicine that exactly. targets the the tumor or targets exactly where it needs to go. Yes. Okay. And, okay. You know, I'm glad you brought up uh, chemo, right? So the cool kids on the block right now is CAR T therapy, and in a way, that's the synthetic biology principle, right? So you you have engineer receptor. You put them onto an immune cell that can naturally destroy cells infected with virus, for example, and now you redirect these immune cells to recognize and attack cancer cells, right? Which mm-hmm. is much smarter than you know, traditional chemo or even target therapy, right? But but then the challenge there is, regretfully to this day, that's pretty much the only success story of mm-hmm. a synthetic biology approach in human therapy, mostly because the infrastructure is not there yet. You know, to build computers, you have to figure out all the, all the chips, all the dials, mm-hmm. right? So we are, we are not there yet. So actually, you know, mm-hmm. despite the ambition, what we are doing right now in the lab is more about building up the building blocks, the infrastructure, so that one day we can build the final circuits we want to build, instead of just going directly into the circuits and putting them into a disease-relevant context. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that metaphor you use of circuits for what you're building, is it really like a one-to-one comparison? You're talking about, um, when we talk about electric circuits, a lot Mm -hmm. of engineers and engineering teachers, they know about Mm -hmm. resistors and voltage Mm -hmm. and current and diodes and capacitors. Is there an equivalent for molecular circuits? Depending on how closely, closely you scrutinize the metaphor, right? So they're equivalent in the sense that there are, you know, physical entities that carry the information from one layer to another, right? But one key distinction is how is the specificity achieved? So in a traditional electric circuit, all resistors look the same, right? The, the, the specificity is achieved by connecting one, resi- one resistor to the one you want to connect them to, right? But in a biology, you know, the cell in a way is a somewhat well mixed a bag of molecules. So mm-hmm. the specificity is not achieved through spatial connection, but rather through a different identity of these molecules, right? So say now, imagine you have three different flavors of resistors, right? And then you, downstream, you have three different matching flavors of the next layer of resistors. And because they are adapters, they have this port, only one of them from first layer can, can dock to a specific one in the second layer. And now mm-hmm. you don't have to maintain their spatial relationship. You can take these six resistors you mix them up and they will still talk to the right partner. So that's what we usually do with molecular circuits, where you have slightly different flavors of the same kind of, say, protein, so that they don't, even in a mixed environment, they only go talk to the right partner. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I'm still imagining the circuit diagrams that I grew up learning about, but I'm imagining you can make biological circuit diagrams mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. the the representation, like you said, it's not physically yeah. connecting things together, but you just throw it all in a bag and it automatically mm-hmm. connects up. That's really interesting. How far are we along then in this process of creating right. the infrastructure yes. for making all this, this smart medicine? Baby steps, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, my field has been around synthetic biology in general for 20 years, right? In the beginning, it was very ambitious. You know, we're going to put computers into human cells. Mm. But the problem of having this mixed bag approach is it's very hard to insulate, right? You know, if you have your physically connected resistors, there's always smart ways to make sure a resistor does not talk to anybody else, just the right partner, mm-hmm. right? But there's only that much specificity you can achieve with the approach I just described. And there's always some crosstalk and off-targets. 
So the most sophisticated circuits people have built in mammalian cells, at least, maybe it's like three logic gates, okay, with two layers, something like that. So it's it's in a way inferior compared to real computers. So right now, I think the uh, aspiration is not to emulate what we build in silico, but rather we're trying to leverage on the interface capability, right? Meaning that the computational power of a real circuit is impossible to surpass anytime soon, or maybe ever with mm-hmm. biomolecular circuits. But mm-hmm. the benefit of biomolecular circuits is, by definition, they can interface seamlessly with all the other biomolecules that's already in your body. Right. Right. Because right. otherwise, you have like a machine brain interface, right? You poke electrodes into the patient's which people actually do. I'm sure you know that, right? Mm-hmm, and that's mm-hmm. okay. You know, you're sitting in a lab, but imagine the patient walking around with that machine, How, no matter how much miniature right, that is, they're hooked to a computer, they're hooked to another electrode, and then the body also will hate the electrode. They will try to wrap it around with fibrotic tissues, right? So there's right. all these problems because the traditional computation is done with non-biosubstrates. Whereas with biosubstrates, the hope is maybe the computation is very simple, right? Just some feedback control with a threshold. But uh, the hope is now there's no or very little rejection of your circuit because it can masquerade as one of the uh, body's own device. Okay, okay. I know that in some of your research, you talk about making these circuits programmable. Mm-hmm. What, does that, what does that mean? Is that also analogous to how you can program computer code exactly. to make something? Okay. Exactly, right? So imagine you, know, you bought a computer from, I don't know, Apple, and all that computer can do is record our conversation, period. And now you want mm-hmm. to go interview a different person, you have to buy a different computer. Right? Or actually, <laughs> you have to do a PhD, spend five years, build your own computer. That's the, no, no one's going to do that. So, yeah. That's the reality in, in my field, in a sense, right? So by programmable, I mean, you know, we want to do hardcore engineering, make sure you can detect one type of input and actuate one type of output, right? But we want that design to be general enough and engineering to be trivial enough. So the next time around, you want to detect something different and do a different output. You know, it's relatively straightforward. We're talking about you know, weeks to months of effort instead of another five-year PhD. So sure, that's yeah. the main part of being programmable. You know, that's on the input-output side, right? And then the other part is you know, what kind of signal processing you want to do. And in my previous published work, you know, we would demonstrate that if it's really programmable with just three components, you can do quantitative thresholding, meaning when input is above a certain value, then you respond. Or maybe you can do logic operation, meaning if you mm-hmm. two inputs, you know, like end odd logic would be the two inputs have to be simultaneous present and not all the other kind of processing, right? Being programmable, meaning every time you want to implement a new kind of signal processing, again, you don't have to reinvent any of these components or re- even re-engineer them. You just take them and you hook them up in different ways, pretty much as you do with resistors. Yeah. You're making little pre-made right. systems or pre-made right. parts that you can put together later to make more right. complicated yes. machines. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And I should mention that I learned about you, Xiaojing, and your lab and your work from the Brain and Behavior Foundation, because I guess you want a grant from them. They're, yes. like Some people might know of them as mm-hmm. sponsoring research in neuroscience. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so they were, I guess, enthusiastic about your work in mm-hmm. having applications to mm-hmm. even mental health mm-hmm. or neurobiology. Yes. How is that possible? How, can you explain how yes. molecular circuits might in the future help with right. that medical field? Yes. And I can give you two examples. 
And by the way, you know, here's a plug-in for these kind of foundations, right? Because our work is a little too crazy. Or if you use <laughs> euphemism, it's a little too futuristic. And mm-hmm. some of the conventional agencies might pause. They're like, you know, it takes too long for this to have any right. benefit, if at all. So you know, for your listeners or their friends, if you have pot of money sitting around, right, look into these kind of uh, <laughs> organizations. Anyway, okay. so, so yeah. first example is this. First example is, you know, the audience might know gene therapy already, right? So basic idea is if some genes are missing from the body, you put the gene back and you fix mm-hmm. the patient, okay? But it's often more complicated than that, especially in the field of neurogenetic disorders where it's very dosage sensitive. And here's what I mean. So a healthy person will have two copies of a certain gene, okay? And there are patients out there with some uh, autism spectrum disorder with just one copy of that gene, okay? But you can mm-hmm. also find patients with three copies of that gene, and they also have some autism-like behavior, right? So now you are in a difficult situation because you cannot do gene therapy on the patient with one copy by simply adding that gene back. Because of the current uh, randomness of the delivery we have into these cells, chances are that in many cells you deliver into, you can easily overshoot from the one-copy situation to a three-copy situation, and then you're just fixing one disease by creating another disease, okay? Mm-hmm. And this you cannot even fix with the out-of-body computer-based closed loop. So what we can do, actually we are not just can, we are you know, building some of the key links in that circuit right now. What we are hoping to achieve is you put a therapeutic gene, you put, you, you, you put a Cas9-based activator, so you, you introduce a protein into the human cell to activate that one good copy in patients. Okay, and At the same time, you put a sensor that tells you how much of that one copy is getting produced. And if that level that's produced is too much, the sensor can talk to the activator and say, stop activating, let's stay there, right? So, so this, this, there's, there's one example where we believe, and there are actually hundreds of diseases like that, each with their own underlying genes, right? We believe this type of disease pretty much can only be addressed with a strategy like this. Right? So I think that's one of the reasons the BRF is interested in, in this uh, approach. And another reason that's not even in that ground and that goes back to the electrodes in the brain. I mean, I'm sure the audience knows epilepsy and seizure, yeah. right? And you look at the drugs right now for these diseases, it's basically just to make your whole brain less active. And you can imagine how consequential that is in, in terms of cognition and uh, the daily life of these patients, right? So this one is much more futuristic than what I just talked about. But the thing we're trying to build is a similar concept, right? Feedback control. Because when you have a seizure, it's not that like all the neurons in your brain are going berserk. It's actually a very mm-hmm. small fraction of neurons. So if there's a way to, again, put a circuit into all these neurons, but don't trigger the circuit just yet, only when the neuron gets too dangerously active, then you turn on the circuit, and the circuit leads to output that can tune down the activity of these neurons and only these neurons. Right? So with that, we hope you know, we can still have the same efficacy as these sledgehammer drugs, but the side effect would be much, much lower. Hmm. And there are countless examples of biomedicine where this simple kind of feedback can go a long way, but we just don't have the capability just yet. And so you're in the middle of testing this out, or there's already proof that you can make these biochemical sensors to be really specific about you know, sensing uh, how active the neuron is? Like, yes, are we yeah. far enough where you've you've proven the concept in, say, animals or something, or... Uh, right. Is it still so, kind of really basic? 
the other thing is again important for me to not overpromise, right? So I think we're actually sure. much closer in the first example than in the second example, just because of all the complications. When I said when it's dangerously active, how active is dangerously active? So there are all these parts, right, built by someone in the field that can qualitatively achieve what I just said, you know, sensing activity of a neuron and then tuning activity of the neuron. And also we have ways to hook them up. But uh, I honestly also think it's a daunting tuning task to make sure that it, it works. Whereas in the previous case, it's just going from biomolecules to biomolecules. It's relatively straightforward. But then in both cases, you know, my lab is only slightly over one year old, right? Mm -hmm. So we are not even moving into animals yet. Right now we're just testing these circuits in cell culture, right? Making sure it works in cells as they do before we can think about putting them into animals and then yeah. larger animals. And then you know, if all these things go well, I'll be so happy if it actually made, made it to a human patient. But we're talking yeah. about that case right here. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which would be perfect for the students of your listeners. <laughs> no, exactly, exactly. Like I wanted to talk to you because it does right. sound like that yeah. cutting edge of right. research. And in fact, you talked about starting your lab mm -hmm. uh, just a year ago. And I have to mention, you started it during this COVID pandemic, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, how, how can you run a lab? And this is actually really helpful, mm -hmm. I think, for educators to know. How mm -hmm. do you start a new bioengineering lab or a biochemical engineering lab mm -hmm. in the middle of a pandemic where people aren't supposed to be, you know, in contact with each other? How does, how's that going? How did that go? Well, it's very difficult, right? And I hear the shout out to my department who, you know, was really as supportive as they could, right? Both my colleagues yeah. and the staff in the department, within the limit of Stanford policy, which is not that lenient, right? So basically for like three yeah. months, we couldn't do anything. Oh, wow. And for me, because I'm starting, I couldn't even buy equipment, right? So so that's just a reality. And I think another shout out to, to, to the whole world is, you know, I'm sure all the scientists are suffering from from that uh, yeah. inconvenient obstacle, but, you know, we persisted. And, and yeah, so, and of course, COVID is another case, you know, where we want to have better biomedical Right. and research, right? So that the next time we're hit by COVID, we're less underprepared. There are other issues too, but I think that's beyond the content of this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And maybe, yeah, we could save that for another day. Um, may I ask you a little bit about your education? Yes. I know that, um, especially for engineering teachers, you might already be aware that a lot of people who teach engineering or science, they might not know a lot about how to get students or steer students mm -hmm. into the more biomedical engineering field. And I understand that you studied biology mm -hmm. earlier too, but you're mm -hmm. still kind of doing engineering now. Uh, basically, what should students study to get in your field? How did What did you study and what should students study in the future? And I don't know, maybe it can actually resonate with the students, right? Because in high school, I was actually doing a physics Olympia, okay, hmm. back in China. And uh, went, you know, reasonably far, but not far enough. And then the other thing is, you know, I, back then I naively thought all the big questions in physics was solved. And then looking around, biology seems very fascinating with all these unknowns, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that's where the transition happens. And then you just, you know, go. So I always have some bio in, in the title of my majors, right? Undergrad, PhD. But then at the same time, I'll always maintain interest in quantitative approach, right? So if... And I, I would say, you know, what is engineering? Engineering is just taking these quantitative understanding of the world and trying to apply them to solve a problem. Right? Mm -hmm. So in that sense, I don't think the students have to be sort of specifically prepared for this type of field. Rather, you just you know, build up your quantitative skills, get comfortable with that, 
find the question you're passionate about. If it happens to be biomedicine, welcome to our field, but I'm sure they can make an impact in other fields as well with a strong core skill set. Did you have people to help you get where you are? Absolutely, yes. Right. So, I mean, again, you know, another, if we are going slightly beyond the scientific specifics, right, the importance of mentorship. And, you know, I've been blessed with very empowering mentors throughout my trajectory, right? And, you know, going backwards, my more recent was my postdoctoral advisor, Michael Allowood. Right? Just, uh, he's a, I would say, maybe the founder of the whole field, right? He, he, he's been the part of the whole field. And then going slightly back, my PhD advisor, who was a neurobiologist, Li Ching Luo. And as a matter of fact, we are actually collaborating right now on the feedback gene therapy project because his lab has a disease model you know, where we can test our circuit. So these are sort of official helps. And another part of being a scientist, you know, the exciting thing of being a scientist is there's all these unofficial helps you get from going to meetings or just chatting with people that you run into in the elevator mm-hmm. or you reach out to for coffee. Because right? it's such a big field. Nobody can do everything alone. But if you embed yourself in a vibrating scientific community, you can almost always find the right person to talk to. And to me, that's actually one of the exciting parts, other than in addition to what we're already doing. Yeah. That's funny you say that because I think a lot of young kids sometimes have this perception that science or engineering is very isolated. Right. Because one of my questions that I was going to kind of end up with was how do you overcome challenges? Mm Because I'm sure that sometimes it gets difficult. For example, when you started that lab in the middle of the pandemic, or there's, there's times when students go to engineering school Mm -hmm. and engineering, uh, an engineering degree is notorious for Mm -hmm. being difficult. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you stay up all night studying. Mm -hmm. How did you get over challenges uh, in your educational path? Right. And before answering that, maybe I should first go back to the comments on you know, the image of scientists as loners. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that the problem is maybe the endeavor of science is not a loner's business anymore, but the credit system is still pretty much the old way, right? What so you- you know, when a student see the shiny examples in the media or newspaper, they are like, oh, okay. you, you know, you, like it takes an outstanding individual to achieve that. But in reality, it's... Right now, is what I'm telling you mostly about is not done by me, but my but my postdoc and students, right? Mm. And also by by my community. So you know, if if the students are aiming for the fame and uh, there isn't much money, but say the money too, uh, if that's what they're aiming <laughs> for, you know, maybe you have to go it alone, but you can't go very far. The the reality is, it's yeah, it's a community endeavor, right? So that that's part of it. Mm-hmm. And now mm-hmm. going back to challenges, I think the most important thing you you is you have to be delusion enough to believe that it's going to happen, say, in three decades, right? Because it, it, might, it might not happen. You know, I'm sure something will happen from my field, but I'm not narcissistic enough to think it has to be happening from my lab, right? Sure. So a lot of questions, yeah. you, you have to have faith in the importance of the thing you are doing, or at least you are, you are collectively doing to do that. And once you have your eyes set on that delusion, but worthy goal, right? Everything else just because the daily challenges, all, all of a sudden seems much more... Uh, manageable or, or worthy of managing, right? So that's the, I would say the strategic side of this. And then the practical side is, you know, know when to ask for help, uh, know mm-hmm. who to ask for help. And then hopefully, you know, the, what the engineering, a rigorous engineering, engineering education gives you is, you know, regardless of asking help or not, you also have just the basic problem solving skills 
I don't know if there's something more specific. It's just you know take what you learn in school. No, that's that's uh, working fine, on yeah. projects and apply that to. I think that's fine. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Xiaojing Gao, thank you so much yes. uh, for for talking with me. And if people want to find, if teachers especially want to mm-hmm. find out more about your research or your students' mm-hmm. research, yeah. what's kind of a good source for them to look at? Right. So first of all, actually for my postdoctoral work, the programmable protein circuit work, we specifically wrote a student-friendly version and I can I can send you that later, right? So that'd be so great. Maybe yeah. it's more accessible. <laughs> not, not by a much, I, I'm afraid, but hopefully more. No, that hey, that's a great assignment that they can assign their high school students to read and and uh, understand. True. And the other thing is, we used to have a program where we can have like one high school teacher embedded in the lab. Oh yeah. Um, you know, and for a summer, I think it was great. But this year, the money is gone. <laughs> so it's it's not there anymore, right? So my point yeah. is, you know, if there is some part of money sitting somewhere in Texas, you know, sending high school students or their educators you know, on some sort of internship, right? I'm, I'm certainly happy to, A, like be a host myself, and B, because you know, how awesome my department is and also my school, there is like a outreach push to some extent i'm also happy to advocate for that right and try to you know place people into the labs who are willing to receive them because at the end of the day i think you know what the students read or maybe the educators too to a lesser extent what they read about science and they would say experience you know, in a lab is so different yeah it's very hard to convey just by me talking right they, 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 they just come in and try it for themselves but then again, it does not have to be my lab. There are great institutes in Texas <laughs> as well, which probably makes more logistic sense. Uh, but I just don't know about the outreach structure over there. Yeah. No, it makes sense. You're right. I there are I would say pretty much every university mm-hmm. that I've mm-hmm. seen they have that kind of STEM outreach. But that program that you've talked about about bringing teachers mm-hmm. into labs to work, mm-hmm. I have heard about that, and I need to look up mm-hmm. the name for that. I feel like there's a federal program for that as well mm-hmm. but i'll look that probably up. yeah i i don't remember the name of it but if you want me to i can also look into at least stick into old emails hey if you happen to run into it that'd be great but i know that you're quite busy running a lab over there i really appreciate your time thank you that was dr Xiaojing gao assistant professor of chemical engineering at stanford university Find links to many of the topics mentioned today in the show notes. You can also find all that and more great stuff at the podcast website, k12engineering.net. The K-12 Engineering Education Podcast is produced by my indie studio, Pios Labs in Austin, Texas. Pios Labs fosters growth in engineering and education through edtech, digital media, games, and professional development. Follow Pios Labs everywhere to stay updated. That's P-I-O-S-L-A-B-S. Are you as into all of this awesome stuff as I am? Help me spread the word by rating and reviewing the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Thank you to the fantastic patrons of this show on Patreon. If you can donate to the show too to help it keep going, please do over at patreon.com slash pioslabs. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash p-i-o-s-l-a-b-s. 
Take care, listener, and until next time.